All right, psychology nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martingano, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Today, I'm here with a co-host, Alessandra Quatzo, an undergraduate psychology major at UWGB. How are you doing today, Alessandra? I'm doing really good today. How are you? I'm all right. A little sick at the moment, but it's that time of year right now. <laughs> so, Alessandra, you're a senior in the psychology department here at UWGB. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're studying? Yeah. Okay. So, I am a psychology major. Um, I'm actually graduating at semester. So, um, yeah, the major in psychology, and then I'm a double minor in sociology and French. Oh, congratulations on the upcoming uh, graduation. You must be really excited. Just another couple of weeks to go. Yeah, I'm very excited. And then got some studying for grad school. Yeah, yeah. That'll keep you busy, no doubt. (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm thrilled to have you on today, Alessandra, to act as my co-host. So I'm going to pass it over to you and you can introduce our guests. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, So we are here with not one, but three fantastic guests who will be talking about false confessions. Um, Our first guest is an assistant professor um, of psychology at Butler University and brand new to the Psychology and Stuff podcast. Um, Please welcome Dr. Fabiana Alceste. Um, Dr. Alceste studies social and cognitive processes surrounding false confessions. How are you doing today, Fabiana? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Um, Fabiana, you've never been on the show before. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into doing research on false confessions? Sure. It's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I was an undergraduate student and met a friend in a class that was outside of my major. And we decided that we should take another class together because we really liked being in, in a linguistics class. And uh, we thought that psychology and law would be a really good class to take together. I signed up for psychology and law. He signed up for psychology of law. Uh, We thought that we were going to be in the same class, but we weren't. And we didn't find out until the first day of classes. Um, But I stuck with my course, which was out of the psychology department and taught by a psychologist. I believe his class was taught by a law professor. So that was going to be a very, very different kind of class. But uh, in that class, I learned everything about wrongful convictions that uh, everything that kind of the role that psychology plays in the legal system and especially around wrongful convictions. So we learned about eyewitness misidentifications. We learned about the way that juries make decisions. We learned about how it's really hard to remember alibis uh, if you're suspected of a crime. Um, And most importantly for me, we learned about police interrogations and false confessions. Uh, the second we that topic was introduced, I was absolutely enthralled. And I decided right then and there that this is what I wanted to dedicate my life to studying. Um, I thought that being wrongfully convicted on the basis of a false confession is just about the worst thing that can happen to someone. Uh, and I really felt a very, very strong passion for it as an undergraduate student that has not died down in the slightest. So that's kind of what I dedicate my research to as a professor now. That's very interesting. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, so many people think that nobody innocent would like ever confess to a crime that they didn't commit. Can you tell us some reasons why people do? Yeah, definitely. 
Um, I think it. you're right that it's a very common sense notion for people to think, well, I would never falsely confess to something that I didn't do. I would never apologize for something that I didn't do. Um, but it happens a lot more often than people think. And I think things like documentaries and podcasts are really bringing that to light. So I'm really grateful for the kinds of uh, investigative journalism and docu-series that take this topic very seriously uh, and are educating the public about it. If I were to kind of give you two broad reasons that people might falsely confess or succumb to the pressure of a police interrogation, I would separate those into personal uh, characteristics of the suspect, but then very, very importantly from my perspective as a social psychologist uh, is the circumstances that surround the interrogation. So the situation that that person, no matter who they are, finds themselves in and the pressures that come along with those kinds of situations. So personal uh, characteristics might be things like a person's age. Uh, we know that younger people are more susceptible to giving a false or coerced confession because of their uh, deference to authority, because of their immaturity of judgment. Um, they have uh, sometimes value more short-term short uh, rewards, like being able to escape from this pressure-filled situation rather than the long-term consequence of, oh, I just confessed to a crime, <laughs> right? Um, sometimes that can be really difficult for a minor to hold in their mind while they're exp experiencing this pressure. Um, another thing might be a person's IQ. That's a personal characteristic that a person brings with them to every situation that they're in, but can make them vulnerable to something like a false and coerced confession when they're put in that pressure-filled pressure situation. Um, other kinds of things might be uh, people who have mental disorders, people who have disabilities, people who have addiction issues, right? Um, all of these kind of things are the personal characteristics that might put someone at risk of falsely confessing. Now, the situational factors are much more, have much more to do with the interrogation tactics that a person is subjected to. Things like minimization and maximization. Things like uh, being presented with false evidence that you committed the crime. Um, the length of time that someone is interrogated has a strong correlation to uh, false and coerced confessions. Uh, so that's what I mean by personal and then situational factors that might lead someone to confess to something that they didn't do. Yeah, so actually, um, I wanted to touch a little bit on the false evidence ploy and minimization tactics. Um, so I, one of the articles you have published um, in 2018 is on the general acceptance of confessions research opinions of the scientific community. Um, you surveyed 87 false confessions and you found a strong consensus overall um, among the experts that the risk of false confessions is in increased by these two common interrogation tactics. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the two different those two different methods? Sure. So the false evidence ploy is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's when uh, an interrogator will bring up or present evidence that this suspect committed the crime during the interrogation, even if that evidence does not actually exist. 
So a lot of people don't know that police are allowed to lie to suspects about evidence against them in the case. They're allowed to say, we have your fingerprints on the murder weapon, even if that's not true. They're allowed to say, we have your co-conspirator in the next room and they're being interrogated and they're singing like a canary, right? And they're implicating you in all of these uh, criminal situations, even if that's not true. Um, so when you misrepresent reality to people like that, it unmoors them, it confuses them, especially when that false information is coming from a credible source. Because like I said, a lot of people don't know that police are allowed to lie about evidence in that way. So you might start to think, well, how is that possible? I, I know for sure that I wasn't there. Um, so how can it be that my DNA is all over the crime scene? That confuses people. It may lead them to question their own memory. It may lead them to question their own beliefs, uh, especially when that tactic is paired with something like, well, you know, sometimes people um, people black out when they do something traumatic or when they experience something traumatic. So it's possible that you uh, you committed this crime and that's why your DNA is all over the scene and you just don't remember. And that's that kind of tactic is something that is often paired with that false evidence ploy. So in kind of a metacognitive way, people start doubting their own memories um, and may actually start to believe that they committed this crime. Now, that's pretty rare, I would say, um, but we know that it has happened before. But another reason that someone might falsely confess to, in response to this false evidence ploy, is they may see it as a promise future exoneration. So they may say, well, these folks think that I'm on this CCTV footage, for example, I know that I wasn't there that day, so I should just try to give them what they want now in this moment and tell them yes, so that I can get out of this really horrible, stressful situation that I'm in. And then once they, you know, really investigate the CCTV footage, once they really get a forensic expert in there to look at it, they'll see that it's not me. And the confession will not uh, go against me because they'll know that it was false. This is a fatal mistake. Um, a lot of times a confession ends the investigation rather than uh, leading it to continue and try to find evidence that discredits the confession. That usually does not happen. Um, so that's kind of how the false evidence ploy works and how it can lead to false confessions. Minimization is another type of, it's another category of tactic entirely. Um, it's a lot more common than false evidence ploy, I would say. We know that from observational studies of real interrogations in the field, and uh, we know that from self-report studies of interrogators self-reporting what kinds of tactics they use in their interrogations. So minimization is basically uh, talking through different kinds of reasons that someone might commit a crime that serve to minimize the moral seriousness of that crime. So to make it seem like, well, you're not a bad person if you did this, maybe you were just in a bad situation. So different kinds of minimization themes might be victim blaming, you know, well, that person deserved to be assaulted, they were antagonizing you, and they 
they cheated, uh, your wife cheated on you with them. So I would have done the same thing. They were asking for it. Um, other things might be uh, that something was spur of the moment. You did not plan this out. You're not a cold populated killer. This is something that happened in the heat of the moment. So those are different kinds of, of uh, minimization themes. Now, the way minimization works, like I said, it's very different from the false evidence ploy. They uh, kind of make people feel like they will get a lower sentence in return for confessing. So if you think about it, it makes sense. If someone is saying, well, you just need to be honest with us. You're, we're really trying to help you here. I don't think you're a bad person. A jury is not going to think that you're a bad person. If you explain what happened. If you don't explain what happened, then that's where we really have to go based on assumptions. And a jury might not, you might not like what a jury assumes or infers about you, right? That's not outright saying if you confess to this, you're going to get a lower sentence. But that is exactly what is implied by a lot of these minimization themes. And so people might confess in response to those themes uh, because they think that they will be rewarded later with a lower or lighter sentence if they cooperate with the police right now. Wow, thank you so much for sharing all that, Fabiana. It's, it's really quite scary, uh, the, the tactics that the, the police officers can use during interrogation processes. Um, I'd love to ask you about how you and your collaborators um, study these, these sort of things uh, scientifically. So we've read some of your research and some of Dr. Kasson's research, uh, and I'm, I'm always taken to the, the sort of ingenious research ideas that you have to come up with in order to test this, because obviously you can't go into a, a real police art interrogation and test it there. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit uh, to how you test these questions scientifically and also any difficulties you come across when you're trying to do that. Yes. So a lot of our types of studies will be differentiated between perceptions of how an actor feels or a suspect or a person who is really in a pressure-filled situation like a suspect in an interrogation or what an observer might perceive and how they might judge a situation that they themselves are not in. So for observers, it can be a lot easier to test things that way because you can describe a scenario, describe an interrogation to a participant or present them with a transcript of an interrogation uh, and then ask them about to make judgments about how they what they're perceiving going on in that scenario. Uh, and a lot of those kinds of uh, paradigms you can do online. You can do that kind of study without even seeing a person face to face. Um, or talking to them. You can just do it kind of online. Now, getting the perceptions of an actor or a person who is actually in that situation is a little bit more difficult. Uh, for that, we do have a lot of established laboratory paradigms that we use. Um, one of the most famous ones is one called the Alt-Key paradigm. Uh, that is where you bring a participant into the lab, and they think that they're doing a test about typing, how, how well they can type. And you tell them, hey, by the way, there's a glitch on, in this computer program that if you press the Alt key by mistake on the keyboard, the entire system will crash and will lose everything. And then lo and behold, they're typing, they're typing, the computer crashes, and you ask them, 
well, did you press the up key? Now, in reality, not all of, no one almost has pressed the alt key by mistake, but you can kind of lead them to admit to or confess to pressing the alt key, whether it's by mistake or not, you just cause the, the destruction of all of this data. Um, and you can see how people might start to believe that they press the alt key by mistake, or they might just say, yes, I did it. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to just to get out of the situation or to give the uh, the experimenter some closure about what happened. So that's one that, that uh, we use. Uh, I will say a lot of these laboratory paradigms require deception and that the Alki paradigm is, is no exception here. Um, we have another paradigm that we like to use called the cheating paradigm. This is where um, participants are paired with uh, what we call a confederate, a, a research assistant who is actually part of the research team who is pretending to be another participant. So you might pair a real participant with a confederate uh, and put them in a situation where they're asked to complete some kind of trivia task or some kind of test, knowledge-based test of some kind, and ask them to uh, either not use outside resources or tell them to complete this test individually and not working together. And then uh, what the cheating paradigm eventually uh, results in is the confederate asking the participant for the answer or the confederate instigating cheating in some way. Uh, and then the experimenter comes back in and says, I noticed that you got all of these answers right. That's really improbable. Did you cheat? And then going from there, how can we employ these kinds of interrogation techniques to get the, the truly innocent participant or sometimes guilty participant, depending on what they're randomly assigned to? Um, how can we get them to admit to something that they either did or didn't do? And so that kind of paradigm really allows us to see the differences between innocent and guilty participants, because you can be randomly assigned to be either innocent or guilty. Whereas something like the alt-key paradigm is meant to study pretty much only innocent participants, participants who did not actually commit this transgression. So those are kinds of two basic uh, laboratory paradigms that uh, I'm sure required a ton of pilot testing and a lot of vetting, especially from institutional review boards at the the institutions where they were, uh, where they kind of started uh, because of this deception. But they're ones that are pretty common nowadays, and they, you know, they've been replicated in many contexts as well. Um, so that's fun, the deceptive studies uh, that we use in, in social psychology a lot. Yeah, no, I, I I find these those two that you described the alt key uh, paradigm as well as as the cheating one. Uh, they're so ingenious, and I'm I'm always so impressed with the person that came up with them the first time. Um, they're they're amazing. Uh, I work with my research. I do a lot of VR research, and I was wondering if uh, your area has has moved into using VR at all. I'm imagining a alt key paradigm, but in VR, is that anything you've worked on? To my knowledge, I don't think that anyone in the field has used virtual reality um, to study interrogations. I know that we have, uh, or the field as a whole, has employed other kinds of technology. So, for example, there's one study uh, that is actually a false evidence study where uh, the experimenters doctored 
video footage of the participant committing transgression. So they were being recorded and uh, no one actually committed the transgression on their own, but they doctored video footage showing that they assigned themselves money that they weren't supposed to at a time that they were supposed to do that. And then showed the participants that doctored video footage as a confrontational tactic of, well, look, we have proof that you did this. Um, so that kind of um. technology is employed. Uh, that's not virtual reality, but uh, pretty close, I would say. Um, and then, of course, uh, one of my studies that both Eileen and Francis have worked on, we took a laboratory paradigm that was meant to uh examine perceptions of custody. So perceptions of how free do you feel to leave when someone is questioning you about a transgression? And because of um, the restrictions that were put in place due to the COVID-19 pandemic, where people were not being questioned in person anymore, people were being questioned either through Zoom or through telephone or through other some other kind of video conference, we took that paradigm and we uh, altered it to be a cheating paradigm where we actually interrogated people via Zoom. Uh, so other kinds of uh, technological advances being used in our methods, but not quite VR. I'm sure that that's on the horizon uh, in some lab out there, but that would be really interesting to be able to do. Thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, I do have actually another question for you. Um, could you briefly explain um, to the audience what the read technique is and why it might be seen as problematic? The read technique is a nine-step interrogation technique that originated out of Chicago, Illinois. Um, it is a proprietary technique owned by the company of the same name, uh, the read technique. Uh, it employs the use of the minimization themes that I was talking about earlier. Um, they call it theme development. It's the second step out of the nine steps. Uh, and it it's the majority of interrogation done by a read trained interviewer is going to include that theme development, those minimization themes. One of the reasons that people think that the read technique might be problematic is because we know of uh, known false confessions that have resulted from interrogations that use the read technique uh, and laboratory uh, experiments that study different tactics taught by the read technique like the false evidence ploy and like that theme development we know those lead to false confessions in the lab as well uh, so that's in a nutshell what the read technique is and uh, what we know about it from being psychological scientists and researchers and why do you think um, certain people are more susceptible to these techniques? Yeah, that kind of goes back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier about the personal characteristics that might put people at risk. Um, younger people are more susceptible, uh, people with low IQs, people who uh, are suggestible for other kinds of reasons. Now, it's easy to focus on people with those vulnerabilities, and it is true that those vulnerabilities are very real. But I think that something that it's important not to lose sight of is that anyone is vulnerable to give a false confession because of those situational pressures. 
um, not just people with those vulnerabilities, but pretty much anyone might be uh, at risk to give a false confession using the, if those techniques that we were talking about are employed. Thank you so much, Fabiana. Um, before uh, we have you go uh, this afternoon, I, I wanted to ask you one last question, uh, which was where can our listeners keep up to date with your research? Yeah, I do have a website. If listeners would like to uh, go on it, they can see my CV, which has a list of all of my publications. And uh, it has pictures of the students that are currently in my lab and what they have been working on and awards that they've won or presentations that they have done. Um, but uh, if you're interested in learning more about false confessions, you can use any kind of uh, psychological database like PsychInfo if you have access to that through your institution or even Google Scholar. I know that there are a lot of uh, articles that are free and available to the public through various kinds of anywhere that you would get a, a, a research article. Um, I also can be heard uh, speaking or being interviewed uh, in a podcast called Bear Brook in season two. Uh, so if you're interested in listening to someone apply all of these concepts in a true crime setting, a real world scenario, that was a murder in uh, New Hampshire in the 80s. Uh, so I talk about all of these things in relation to a real crime that has occurred. Um, so that's Bear Brook season two. And um, that might be it. So <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot of places that you can get other uh, eyes to other people's research as well. Thank you so much. And you are not the only academic I've interviewed who's not keeping their website up to date. I am also the same way. Uh, so thank you so, so much for, for joining us uh, today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your insights. Of course. Thank you. Uh, please enjoy Francis and Eileen. We will. All right. Thank you, Fabiana. Um, um, so as Fabiana mentioned, our other two guests are Eileen Fulkins and Fran Francis Storgen. Um, so Eileen Fulkins is a junior at Butler University pursuing a double major in psychology and strategic communications. She is a student researcher currently examining the presence of apologies and confessions and its impact of the perception and punishment in Dr. Alceste's psychology and law lab. Her previous experience in the lab has been focused on studying topics in false confessions, interrogations, and police custody. How are you doing today, Eileen? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, Eileen, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience with false confessions? Yeah, so I was originally in Dr. Alceste's research and statistics class, um, at which point she did use several incredibly helpful examples and kind of the application of those. Um, from there, she asked if anyone was interested in lab. I, of course, was. Um, applied from there. Um, as she mentioned in a previous question, I've primarily worked on the Zoom custody study, which was a little bit less false confession-y, a little bit more custody-based. Um, but in the lab, we do typically look at a lot of real-world cases, um, whether that's transcripts, videos, um, reports generated by others. I'm looking at kind of those techniques mentioned before, especially the maximization and minimalization. Thank you. Um, and Francis, um, Francis Storgen is a third year 
criminology and psychology major at Butler University. Um, she has worked as a student researcher in Dr. Alceste's psychology and law lab on false confession and interrogation research. She is currently studying the effect apologies and confession can have on the perception of an offender. Francis, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience in the lab? Yeah, so I um, am a criminology and psychology major, so I had my eye on Dr. Alceste's lab since my freshman year, and I took the same research methods and statistics class with Eileen, and um, at the same time, I was really just like, I want to take a class with this professor because her research was so interesting to me. Um, I also fell in love with research methods and statistics, so I added data science to my minors, um, but besides the point, um, and I applied and joined the lab, and it's been a really incredible experience, for sure. She's a really great mentor, and the other students in the lab are just so intelligent and really interesting stuff, yeah. Cool. Um, it, what advice would you give to our listeners, either Francis or Eileen, um, if they ever find themselves accused of a crime that they did not commit? Very first, I would say have a lawyer in the room with you, or if you're underage, make sure you have a parent. Do not answer any questions, um, because a lot of things we focus on are problems with youth, um, and especially in Indiana. They actually just passed a law that you no longer can use false evidence ploys against children, but that is a new development. So I would say, whoever you are, make sure there's someone else in the room. Yeah, kind of going off of that, my primary advice would be to just stay as quiet as you can until someone gets there. Um, there are a lot of tactics used where they can get anything you said to indicate something else. If you simply agree to something, if you disagree, if you engage in really conversation, you might, if they're using the read technique, kind of get hit with that, tell us the truth or further going on, which really kind of pulls at you wanting to be a good person. If you didn't do something, you want to help find the person who did. You want to make sure your name is cleared, but you might be kind of playing into those ploys that are actually going to put you on the hook rather than help them find someone else. Thank you. Um, I know Dr. Alceste touched on this a little bit earlier, but do you think that juries should undergo training in regards to false confessions? Yeah, I definitely think the juries are like a really key part of this whole thing, because as she talked about, while we try to do work with like people putting them in those interrogation scenarios, we also have a lot of research just about observers and that's all about the jury. And, you know, if you can convince a jury that that confession might have been false, that's really crucial because confessions are oftentimes more important evidence than things like DNA, which is something shocking that I've learned since joining the lab because you would think DNA evidence would be the biggest thing. But what we say means so much more sometimes. So I do think that if juries are educated on how false confessions can happen, what interrogations really look like, and what these techniques are, I think it would really change a lot of the ways that the system kind of goes. Yeah, going off what Francis said, a lot of our data um, goes to support the fact that most people, whether regardless of their age, career, any other demographic info, have a really or ability to judge what someone else might have been feeling in the situation. This has been consistent across in-person, technology, varying types of situations. People just kind of guess at a baseline, which is, is not helpful in these situations where they might be a false confession. So 
I think education is definitely the first step of that, whether you have someone like Dr. Alceste prepare something or you just show them this is an example of what, what happened here. Um, this is what a false confession might look like. This is psychologically why this is important because you might be able to tell someone, hey, if someone says tell the truth, most people are going to say, yes, you should tell the truth. But if you explain the reasoning of that is minimization and that it's trying to get an honesty theme in there and that is more coercive than it may seem, that is incredibly important in getting juries to understand the reality of what that person might be feeling in that room. Thank you. Um, I did hear um, either Francis or Riley mention the read technique again. Um, so I'm actually going to focus for a little bit on a case um, localized in Wisconsin. Um, so it's a case that is still not resolved to this day, and I'd like to get your opinions on it. Dr. Alceste's research found that experts agreed that the risk of the undue influence is higher among adolescents and those with intellectual impairments or diagnosed psychological disorders. This makes me think of a famous case here in Wisconsin. This case was made famous by the Netflix series called Making a Murderer, but it's not the main character of the series who I'm interested in getting your thoughts on. It's his younger nephew, Brandon Dassey, who was convicted as a co-conspirer for rape and murder at the age of 17. Dassey was interrogated on four occasions over a 48-hour period, including three times in a 24-hour time frame with no legal representative, parent, or other adult present. He was interrogated via the read technique. During this interrogation, he told investigators in an interview that he had sexually assaulted Hal Batch when presented with Avery killed her, and then helped burn her body and belongings. Dassey later recanted this confession. Attorneys for Dassey pointed out that it, he is a teen with an intellectual disability. Dassey is also more likely to suggestion due to this um, disability. Despite the lack of physical evidence um, tying Dassey to the crime, a jury found him guilty in April of 2005, and he was sentenced to life in prison. So he has actually filed several appeals um, during his against his conviction, claiming that his confession was co coerced. Um, to this day, none have been successful. So um, why do you think it's so hard to get a conviction um, to overturn um, based on allegations of coercion? Um, I think it's it's difficult because as we've mentioned before, and as we found in this lab, which was also quite surprising to me, is that confessions generally trump all when it comes to evidence. You can have DNA evidence, you can have alibis, you can have any of that. But as Dr. Alceste mentioned, once a confession is elicited or given, whichever it may be, the investigation kind of comes to a stop that is taken as 100% truth. And that has that goes forward. And I think it also goes with what you opened the podcast with of most people don't think that they would ever confess to something that they didn't do. And so when you think that, well, why would someone confess to something so horrific as this? They have to have done it. Um, that really leads someone to kind of pigeonhole on, well, there's no other reason they would have confessed because most people don't know the extent to which these measures can affect someone. Um, and to my knowledge, by the end of that um, interrogation, he had confessed with details that were not necessarily public. Um, and with just a consistent story, though most people didn't consider that it took four interrogations and a lot of different measures to get that story. I definitely think that it's really difficult, as Eileen and Dr. Alcese previously said, that once that confession is out there and that person has said, 
I did it. I know these details, whether it was fed to them or it was truly something that came from their experience. It's really hard to take that back um, as far as the law goes and as far as humans go. Like I said earlier, we just really take the word that people say as really important, which has been clearly a problem when it comes to things like the Innocence Project, trying to help people overturn these convictions. But it's like, why would you have said that, though, if you didn't do it? And it's like I said, really hard to explain to people the like psychological distress that someone is under in interrogation because that actor observer effect is just really hard to kind of get through and muddle out and figure out. Thanks so much for, for mentioning that, Francis. I'd like to actually touch on that. So in Wisconsin here, we have the Wisconsin Innocence Project. I wonder if you could talk more broadly about what innocence projects are and, and how they use DNA. Yeah, so um, to my knowledge, like innocence projects just work on exonerating people with um, DNA evidence that maybe hasn't been tested yet, has been stored for long periods of time, and finally exonerating people um, once they find out that their DNA actually was never at the scene, it was somebody else or someone they haven't even gotten, something like that. Um, so innocence projects are just working to get those people that have already been convicted based on a confession or more situational things once um, clear DNA evidence actually comes out. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a really great charity, and I'm, I'm so glad they exist, although it makes me a little sad that they have to exist uh, as well at the same time. Um, where do you see the field of false confessions, like the research on false confessions heading in the next decade? I definitely think um, it's going to become, sorry, I think it's going to become a lot more important. I think um, we've seen a lot of pushback, and I know Dr. Alceste can really speak to this, between um, like the legal system and the criminal justice system and psychological research kind of struggling between getting them to accept the way psychology works in law and in crime. But I think that as we move into a new generation of people taking on positions in both of these fields, it's going to become more important and we're really going to understand the pressing issue of putting psychological phenomena and understanding psychology into like the importance of what happens in the courtroom and in interrogation rooms and such. I also think, as Dr. Osese mentioned, the media attention from podcasts like this one, from true crime podcast docuseries is going to be really important in furthering that of just bringing this issue to light and hopefully through some of the experts on there kind of getting at least the basics, if not the details, not everyone has to and with a comprehensive knowledge, but the basics of that there are false confessions, and this is why there are false confessions, into the public's head, because as we've mentioned, juries made up of the public are one of the most important factors in this system. They're ultimately some of the ones who decide what happens to these individuals and whether to believe the confessions. And so the awareness first needs to come, um, and then hopefully as we progress in research, we are able to look at that uh, more specifically, we are doing apologies right now, which has been under-researched. There are so many more specific under-researched areas of false confessions that I hope can come to light because the field for so long has just been pushing for false confessions at all to reach awareness and to be listened to. And so now that there is 
a little bit of momentum behind it, we're hoping that those smaller aspects that can kind of weed out the details might be able to help. Um, and whether that's influence public, influence laws, um, we hope that it can kind of change as times change. Thank you so much. That's, here's to hoping, right? Um, so I, I do have one last question uh, for my students. So I teach one class in my social psychology class on forensic psychology, and it's always, always one of my students' favorite classes, but I am not a forensic psychologist, as psychology and law is not my expertise. So I'd love to get uh, uh, your perspective and your story on, on how you managed to get into this uh, field, uh, what what degrees uh, you took uh, and you plan to pursue if you want to study false confessions? Um, so I had known for a long time I was really interested in forensic psychology and um, particularly just the intersection between law and psychology. And I never 100% knew what I wanted to do with it. And when I saw that Butler had this combined criminology and psychology program, I decided to go for it. And the kind of big lab in the psych department that was covering that topic was false confessions, which I didn't necessarily have a certain passion for. I just knew that Dr. Alceste was who she is, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Um, so I joined it, and I just learned so much about the intersection between these two things. And especially with the populations that we focus our research on tends to be vulnerable populations of people with severe mental illness youth, people with learning disabilities, um, and I hope to pursue a PhD in clinical psychology afterwards and to really focus my studies on more forensics to help those vulnerable populations within the law system. So that's kind of where I'm headed and kind of how I got there. Unfortunately, my path is a lot less uh, clear than Francis. Um, I have always in high school really loved psychology. Um, I really got into the sociological aspect of it, which of course led me to the criminology aspect. I actually originally came to Butler as a psychology major and criminology major. Um, then I moved to sociology, kind of existing within that realm. Um, I knew psychology would be the main focus, and I knew that I wanted to help people in some way. And I always had an interest in crime and law. And so during that pathway of kind of figuring it out, I joined Dr. Alceste's lab um, as it was an interest of mine. Um, done some incredible work in there. I've learned a lot. Obviously, I am also a strategic communications major, which is not quite in alignment with that. Um, but it's really important to me to figure out how to not only understand this message, but convey this message and get this into um, society get this aware, um, people aware of psychology, psychology and law and the impact it can have. Um, I little unsure what we're going to be doing in the future. I'm either planning to, my interest is primarily in mental health and vulnerable populations. So we're looking at either a master's or PhD in clinical psychology or counseling. Um, but the interest of law and kind of advocating for people who might have been under psychological duress and false confessions or in this situation that you never really expect to find yourself in is something that's been very um, rewarding during undergrad. Well, thank you so much, Eileen and Francis, for joining us today and sharing your incredible insights. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm so grateful that you guys took the time to be on Psych and Stuff. We really appreciate it. Thank you very thank much you. for having us. Really great. Thank you. 
Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bell Salik, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Belisi. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Fabiana Alceste, Ailey, and Francis. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Alice Jane Martingano. Keep being amazing. Mm-hmm.